Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Verkula, and this episode covers the second full week of July 2021. Here we go. So, Tim, we are here. We are living free. Yeah. <laughs> we are not dead yet. Kind of the live free or die, the New Hampshire state slogan. It isn't live free or die hard, is it? That's that's a that's a movie. <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> is it actually live free or die? Yes, live free or die. And it's one of those things that that people like to, you know, it's like too harsh or something. And so there's there's this, you know, New Hampshire pride in it, which I like very much. <laughs> I think it is a threat. I'll live free or you die. That's, this is this is actually the way I prefer to look at it, rather than I'll live free or die. Uh, okay. <laughs> at some point, it comes down to that. Though at what point, people don't really like to think about anymore. It is funny how, you know, there's this always this like softening. And I don't know why that it, it, this comes to mind, but uh, I remember it used to be that people talked about the Holy Ghost. And then that, in, I guess Catholics, I don't know if everybody talks about the Holy Ghost, but, um, and, and then it became the Holy Spirit. And I remember asking my dad one time, so why'd they change it from the Holy Ghost to the Holy Spirit? And he had this somewhat dismissive look. And he basically said, they were afraid we'd be scared. <laughs> so, so maybe, uh, Maybe the people coming to New Hampshire, they're, they'll be scared by the level of, you know, hardcore support for freedom. But it uh, it always makes it a, a nice trip for me. I'd like to go to New Hampshire. Yeah, my state's motto is not anywhere near as exciting. But it is somewhat representative of my attitude towards life. So that's it's Al-Kai, by and by. It's a it's a it's an Indian saying Al Qaeda, which means by and by. And I guess the idea was that the early settlers thought they'd be rich someday, that someday Washington State would be a the place to be, and Seattle was that until a few years ago, and now they're turning it into a uh... place not to be. Exactly. <laughs> I almost said Trump's word for foreign uh, foreign. Uh, places you don't want to be. <laughs> right. And Portland, which is even closer to where I live, is is what Trump said those foreign countries were. It has become a truly an unpleasant pleasant place. The downtown is ruined. It's in ruins. It's an astounding thing. I saw that there is a recall effort on the mayor of Portland, Oregon, which is kind of a, I always see Portland and Seattle as the two kind of crazy sister cities of the Northwest that, uh, but, but nice that Oregon has recall. I believe Washington has it too. And uh, Wheeler is the subject of a recall now. Interesting. It is interesting. Uh, and Washington and Oregon had a really interesting utopian experimentation history. There's a lot of strange communities where it started in Oregon and Washington. And uh, Washington's history was so radical in its early days into the 20th century. Yeah. You know, the, the famous line about, uh, the, was it the 47 states and the Soviet of Washington? That was a toast allegedly made to, uh, uh, to the United States of America. Who's the uh, John Reed? Isn't that the uh, 
what was the Warren Beatty movie, Reds? That was about uh, his 10 Days That Shook the World. And wasn't he from Seattle area? Well, I think, isn't Reed College named after him? Maybe oh. I'm wrong about that. I could be wrong. It should be right. named after him, even. <laughs> <laughs> But there was a lot of uh, union fights in the days of the Wobblies in, in Pacific yes. Northwest. Uh, and really, it isn't much different from it is now, in a sense, because it was like a 5% minority of the population of the state that was sympathetic with the Wobblies. Everybody else pretty much hated them for the simple reason that they were disturbing the peace, right? I mean, that they were causing riots. And people generally don't like riots. That's that's a general. Rule. Yeah, I've I found them not to be. I mean, you you'd think they'd be fun, and then no, not really. Yeah, not so yeah. much. It's not just a question of you know holding up a sign and walking in the street because I mean the Salvation Army does that, and no one really objects to the Salvation Army even if they can't play the tuba on tune. But uh, but it's the it's the violence. I think I'm I'm, I'm going to go yes. out on a limb here. It's the <laughs> violence. <laughs> Oh, inherent in their system. But um, anyway, I we should probably jump into what has been, I think, an interesting week. Uh, in some ways, we have some we have some hopeful notes this week. I think a very positive script, uh, commentary about going into outer space, which some people still seem to find some reason to have a problem with. Uh, but but also I think some things uh, broke in my mind. Now, some of, some of the stories that we talked about, you know, if you were reading the right papers at the right time, uh, you might have known weeks of it ago, but, uh, but some of them don't get covered in the Washington Post and the New York Times. And, uh, and so when I do my opposition research, I, I don't come across them. Anyway, our, our Monday commentary was optimized for attack. And um, there is increasing evidence, and this isn't the, this, this piece at, at thisiscommonsense.org. Uh, in a moment, I'll kind of get to the what I think is really the, the key takeaway, why, why I think what we're talking about is so important. Um, a lot of science in it, you know, uh, uh, phys physicists uh, testifying and other doctors testifying. Um, but it's about how did we get this pandemic and uh, where did it come from? And the fact that now we're somewhat free for the first time, you know, in, in recent weeks and months have become free to talk about one of the possibilities and <laughs> A possibility that uh, uh, one doctor, uh, Richard Muller, who is a physicist from Cal Berkeley, um, so he's not a medical doctor, but brilliant man, and has been looking at this. And I really look at it through his eyes, his testimony, because I thought it was riveting, horrifying, uh, and yet hopeful in the sense that we have so many smart people in this world and we have a relatively free country, especially in the sense that we think we're free. We haven't all kind of come to the conclusion that, oh, crap, we don't really have any freedom. I better shut my mouth. And so we have brilliant people looking at things 
and reading between the lines of their newspapers and sometimes not reading their newspapers and just going into their laboratories and talking to people they know. Anyway, he uh, he basically said um, they're all this is a direct quote. All the scientific evidence argues in favor of the laboratory origin. The evidence in favor of the natural zoonotic origin, there isn't any. There isn't any. And and what he means, just to kind of unpack that for a second, uh, because we don't in the piece unpack that. We've been told left and right that all the, you know, the consensus of scientists, the consensus of scientists betting on a football game, you know, they don't know. And and almost all of the impetus for that line of belief that it's come through natural sources is the fact that we believe previous um, SARS uh, viruses have come through natural sources. So that's not any evidence. That's some deduction. That's some so making a, a guesstimate, making a, a prediction based on prior events, uh, that isn't evidence that you're correct. And, and the other part of it is this political web that has corrupted science in America and much of the world. Um, that has corrupted our media, that has corrupted our social media discussion platforms, that, that basically because scientists were making money, guess what? You think scientists are so wacky and just so brilliant and they're into their own worlds. You know what? They still like money. It's a funny thing. They still like money. And, and we see you know, we have folks at the top, Fauci, others who have played into this, and there's no smoking gun. They didn't they didn't commit a murder. But what they did led to lots of people being dead. And and any time you diminish the search for truth, you hurt people. You hurt people. That's how the world works. We need to be able uh, to, to, you know, discover things, especially when you have a, a pandemic, you know, this is, this is something that doesn't happen every day. This is a virus that everybody hasn't st studied forever. And, and we needed full-throated uh, ability to look into it. And instead, um, we got a lot of corruption, intellectual, political, and not just in the political field, but in the scientific field, because the government controls the scientific field. They're paying the bucks. Those bucks, I don't know where they got them. Where'd they get them? Oh, I guess us. And, and so they control that field. And then we see what happens with big tech and big science and everything else. But Mueller gives us in this hearing, and by the way, this hearing was held on June 29th, so a couple weeks ago plus, but this hearing was also held uh, <laughs> without any Democrats being there. I don't know of any press it got. I can't remember how I bumped into it. 
I think, Tim, you sent me something on it that you bumped into it. I put up the thought of the day based on it. That's right, yes. So I, I fell into it because I, I'm always researching the subject. It's just, when you have so much lying thrown at you, or what seem like lies, and where people are deplatformed for questioning what the official position is supposed to be. That's actually the smoking gun. If there were no deplatforming, I probably wouldn't be that interested. But when they deplatform people, kick doctors off of YouTube and Twitter just simply because they say something that the who doesn't agree with, to me it's just scandalous. And we're finding out more and more that the communication about who to kick off and what to do and so on is being... You know, kind of collaborated uh, with the the White House, with government uh, actors. This is this is a recipe for disaster. This is this is kind of the private, more liberal, free market—not free market, but kind of a a democratic uh, world powers way of doing what the Chinese government is doing. In a totalitarian way. Right, it's a very Soviet thing to do. It's the same thing Orwell was talking about. That is, Orwell was talking about. Uh, it's amazing. It's amazing that they're trying it, that Jen Psaki basically just admitted that they're coordinating uh, with yes. social media companies about what to boot off of their platforms about COVID. It was just yes. last week, right? I mean, it was, yeah. it was. Yes. it's a story we didn't cover this week, but it was right there. No, it was right there. And of course, it's, it, we're in and around it, but it happened very late in the week. Uh, but but Mueller goes through, he, he says he wants to emphasize five points. And he says any one of these points would be pretty conclusive for it being from a lab. And uh, uh, he does believe that uh, the absence of a host animal is one of the five, but also he believes this was spiked uh, and and that there are just markers. Other people have said that, frankly, I have no way of knowing, you know, a doctor could say, or some scientist, I could look at credentials, they could say it was spiked. No, it wasn't spiked. Yes, it was spiked. I wouldn't know what to look for being spiked. But as you just said a minute ago, Tim, when you know that people are being shut up, it makes you realize, uh-oh, I need to hear more voices. I need to hear the other side. And we don't hear the other side. It's absolutely frightening. Um, and here's the, the kicker. So I encourage you to go to This Is Common Sense uh, and read Optimized for Attack. There are links that will take you to the testimony, uh, 20, 30 minutes of testimony by different doctors. They're cut up. So you can kind of go to what you want to hear if you don't want to hear 20 or 30 minutes worth of testimony. But I think that these people are saying important things. And I'm not saying I'm a brilliant scientist who has studied every molecule having to do with this, and I'm giving you my medical opinion. I'm like you, most of you. We don't know all this science, but we're not stupid. And we don't need to be talked to and explained to like we're stupid or not talked to and not explained to and shut up and have other people who we know do have the, the background. Doesn't mean they're right, but they do have the background being shut up. And so he, he 
uh, Mueller says some things. There are a couple of other people that I wish, you know, we're usually 250, 300 words a day, Monday through Friday. That's the commentaries. And, and uh, you know, you can't put everything in there. But I, I wish I could have gotten to the, the uh, doctor who spoke before him, who I thought was very, very uh, smart and, and explained things in ways. There were a couple things in this hearing that I felt like I had a much better kind of understanding of it after hearing this, this, you know, what these guys had to say, whereas before I had heard different sides of it, but I, I didn't feel like I had the same kind of understanding to put it together. But here is the bigger, big story that Dr. Mueller points out, and he calls it horrifying and chilling, and it is. He says that he asked numerous colleagues to help look into this. People he knew who were into virology or into, you know, who were doing these things that were in this specific field to help him understand it as a physicist. And he was told they could not, they could not afford to honestly look at this and publish what they honestly believed and found and deciphered because it would anger China and their laboratories, their laboratories in the United States of America would suffer greatly because of the scientific collaboration. And he goes on to, that they basically be blacklisted, that it would be a painful economic in the bottom line, not just that they, oh, they sent a mean letter, the Chinese are not about saying mean things and leaving it at that. And, and so he says, quote, the idea that China has managed to interfere, to break United States freedom of expression, freedom of investigation, freedom of thought through this collaboration effort is really scary. And it is, we've, we've talked on this podcast, Tim, about the way they have dealt with, with Australia and Australia is trying to get all these Chinese institutions out of their colleges and, and they've taken all kinds of students from China. But then of course, now they've got a little bit of, oh, we're making some money. And China says, oh, you better not teach that. You better not teach this. Oh, you, you complained about us putting people in concentration camps? I mean, how dare you? How dare you be upset that we're committing genocide? How dare you speak about it? How dare you? I mean, the real problem with the Australians, those just, you know, they're, they're cats. They do things like when there's a contagion that sweeps the planet and kills millions of people, and it's obvious, just obvious. I still every day read stuff in the Washington Post and different places where they talk about, well, the China hasn't been as forthcoming as they should be. And uh, the WHO's study may have some questions. You know, the WHO's investigation conducted a year after the fact and conducted by being taken to dog and pony shows. You know, you go to the Wuhan lab and you get a speech for two hours. This is, you know, if you know anything about this subject, and few people do because the media does not tell us and they don't deal with it. 
in any way that would be reasonable. I mean, this is the same media who said we have to attack Donald Trump 24-7 and be vicious and never talk about anything else because he's such a danger and we have to recognize it. Well, these are the people who, in reality, we know, I mean, they could have stopped this pandemic in its tracks before Donald Trump ever made any mistake that would have had any ramifications. And they did not do it. And they did not do it not because, not because they made a mistake. Darn, I, I, if I would have just seen that, I would have known, I would have told everybody. No, because they, they sent thugs to go get the doctor and arrest him because he was saying, hey, we've got a contagion. This whole story is just unbelievable. And it, it actually is a, a way to look at, you know, to be kind of aware of all kinds of other things that, that the Chai Nazis, which is what I call them, what they call them in Hong Kong, who are, <clears throat> are not really communists, but are totalitarian and do behave in the same murderous way as communists, they just want to make a bunch of money because they realize that's also about how you wield power. And they're not as stupid as communists, which since they're our adversary, I think we ought to respect and pay attention to. But um, they are such an incredible danger and our, our institutions have simply just melted at their at their touch, at their dollars, at their bluster. Uh, and it it's why my hat's off to Donald Trump, who stood up to him, whether he did it because he's a crazy man who just likes to fight, or he did it because he understood what a threat they are, or somewhere in between. I don't know. But I'm so glad he did. And frankly, this week, we did many negative pieces on Joe Biden, and I'm not going to pull any punches on Joe Biden. The only thing I can think of that I like about Joe Biden is, as president, um, <laughs> or maybe beyond that, is that he has, in essence, kept most of the Trump policies on China and where he's had opportunities to be better or worse. He's done things like, you know, invite the Taiwanese representative to the inaugural to send a message that, yes, we do. We do recognize, even though we don't diplomatically recognize them, but we do see the free and democratic and vibrant country of Taiwan that is producing most of the semi, uh, most of the uh, Intel chips that are the computer chips uh, that are being produced in this world. And, uh, and, you know, and, and so I've been, I, I've been very happy to see the Biden administration recognizing this threat. And I, I end this piece by saying to people, if you think the Chinazis are merely a threat to <clears throat> their own people and neighboring Taiwan and countries bordering the South China Sea, think again. They are a threat right now. They have, they have a heck of a lot more say on our scientific community than you or I do. 
or any other any other folks in the country, maybe except the president of the United States. Um, I think the Congress, these these scientists clearly know that the, the Congress, you know, is not in bed with with China. They've been very concerned, but China seems to provide what as much money as Congress? Probably not. But China's watching their money, and China will make these labs do what China wants them to do. So this is this is very very scary stuff if you step back and you think about what's going on, and and you know it's easy to kind of think well we're you know our our people are looking out for us and I remember thinking many years ago that one of our problems is that our people are often looking out for themselves and that's always a a problem in in you know it's a problem in China. And their ability to control that society, even with all their totalitarian devices. Uh, but it's a it's a problem in our government. And the more when you think about government being unaccountable, it's easy to think about waste and, you know, that costs something. But this is the sort of problem that is catastrophic if government is unaccountable. Now. One of the lessons I tend to draw from all this is that you shouldn't have government supporting science very much. That is, science shouldn't be supported by taxpayer dollars, because I believe that one of the reasons we have such a lockstep media and a lockstep everything is that there's built-in incentives for pretty much all the people who like government subsidy to come together and suppress and maintain their paradigms. So what we get isn't science, we get is the official position. So what basically we have is a Lysenko problem, is that by government supporting of science, we have Lysenkoism as a possibility, even in a democratic society. So I, I think this is a real problem, and I also think this is a problem with uh, having federal government or any governments uh, mandating any specific medical treatment to a public medical crisis. And so here we have a, a somewhat worse than a flu disease uh, spreading around the world. It hits some people hard, but most people not. And really right. it is. And, and it is. Some, people, some people hearing this may say, oh, it's a lot more than the flu. But if you understand the flu, as Tim Burkula does, it's not really so much more. In other words, the flu is a pretty dangerous thing if you're compromised. And that's really the way... And there are many forms of the flu that hurt the children and the young who are, to my mind, much more worth saving than 70-year-olds. Uh, I mean, I know that sounds horrible. I'm near, I'm close to 70, and I like my 70-year-old friend. Most of my friends are above 50. But I don't think that we need to ha the, the world needs to stop so that we can weather a, a contagion. I think that's just silly. Uh, and so that's my position. But I think that this whole thing about the... Um, basically, everybody lomming on to the idea of universal vaccination with a, an experimental genetic therapy-derived vaccine is crazy. And I don't think anyone would have supported it two years ago. But they did in the context of fear and fear-mongering, and uh, this is all very dangerous, in my opinion. Yeah, you know, the, the, the one thing I noticed in terms of looking, and I haven't done much of looking at it, so so it's not as if I've been searching this all the time, but public opinion on the vaccines, public opinion shot up on the vaccines when they pulled 
Johnson and Johnson off the market. And I thought the decision to pull it off the market was premature and didn't make much sense because the risk factor was so tiny that it was tinier than all kinds of drugs that people use all the time and are prescribed by their doctor all the time. And uh, you know, uh, birth control, uh, uh, the pill, for instance. And, and uh, but it's, it's uh, oh, I'm gonna lose my train of thought. I'm gonna lose my train of thought. I'm afraid I don't have your train. Choo-choo? Yeah, choo-choo. Uh, uh, I, I wanted to actually wonder if maybe we should switch to Thursdays and Fridays pieces because we sort of were on an anti-Biden kick and Thursdays and Fridays are about the Bidens. Yes, they are. Thursdays, boy, once again, we see where the media is. And... Um, and I, you know, I think we've all kind of known. I mean, look, they have a major bombshell that breaks weeks before Election Day 2020. And the media is actively disinterested. And of course, as we've talked about here, uh, uh, the, the media is so actively disinterested that they run, get some old intel people, folks like Clapper and Brennan. Uh, and so the deep state actors come out and they say, this is all Russian disinformation. Now, they are getting briefed oftentimes. So they know this is not Russian disinformation. They know that, I think. And if they don't know it, they certainly haven't been told by anybody in the intel community that this is Russian disinformation because that was never never something that the intel community said. And in fact, the intel community officially denies saying this. There have yes. been a number of intel community people who have denied saying this. And we should mention, I mean, you sort of indicated that Clapper and Brennan are known and proven liars. Known and proven liars to Congress, for one thing. Clapper, yes. under, oath, under oath, they're proven liars, um, much less when they're on MSNBC. But um, but basically, we now are getting more stuff out of the emails. And, you know, this whole thing has been set up that even though it's obvious influence peddling going on by Hunter Biden, I mean, he's he's given this huge, what is it, $80,000 a month? to be on the board of, of a pretty much universally considered corrupt energy company in Ukraine when he has no knowledge about energy. There doesn't appear to be any reason whatsoever for him to be in that position, except as a way to pay him off, kind of. And, and so, okay, uh, that's ugly. And then, of course, you have Joe Biden, who has said, look, I have nothing. I've never discussed it with him. I've never been involved in any way. Um, you know, maybe my son has terrible judgment, but I there's no connection whatsoever. And then, of course, we find that um, I read a piece just today uh, about in the in the post. I, I had seen them kind of coming down on saying, wait a second. The way it's been portrayed, this meeting that Biden had with clients of Hunter uh, when he was vice president was not 
a, a full dinner. He didn't sit down at the dinner. He just came and met people. And of course, then there's pictures of him with, uh, I think, folks from Kakistan. I'm not going to be able to say it. Kakistan. Is that how you say it? Anyway, uh, Kazakhstan, I think maybe is what it is. Yeah, but, it can't be uh, Kakistan. Kakistan would be chaos stand, which I think is a general term for all the stands. <laughs> but but it's like all these folks and, and the corruption, you know, it turns out that uh, Hunter's latest thing, which is to paint pictures and maybe get a half a million dollars or, you know, the same kind of prices that Andy Warhol, you know, would get for his pictures. Um, uh, and then it's all going to be secret. But the guy he has running his art operation has been accused of all kinds of corruption and so on. And I mean, it's just, it is an incredible amount of evidence that something crazy is going on. So, okay, uh, it turns out Biden says he has no involvement whatsoever. That's not quite true. Now, it doesn't mean that Biden, you know, conspired and is, and is guilty and we don't even need to hold a trial or, or investigate further. No, that's not what it means. But it does mean that when he said he didn't have any involvement whatsoever, it was not true. Now we find out from other emails and text messages and things off of this laptop. And we know, of course, it's never mentioned in the media. But the FBI has an investigation. They have informed, you know, Hunter's been informed he is the target of an investigation of his Chinese ties and other things. That's what's been reported by the Associated Press. It just doesn't get mentioned again and again, day after day, because the media is disinterested and wants you to be disinterested. So we're finding out that in a text message, and, and this has been around for, for weeks, but it, we just it keeps drip, 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 that Hunter Biden sends his daughter. He complains that he doesn't get any respect. And he says, quote, I hope you all can do what I did and pay for everything for this entire family, fro, he doesn't say for, but for 30 years. It's really hard, but don't worry. Unlike Pop, who he capitalizes, I won't make you give me half your salary. Now, we had uh, Tony Bobolinsky who came out and said, yes, there was a, this is the guy that uh, it was at, it was kind of the, the next shoe that dropped that, of course, the media ignored this, too. But he was a partner of Hunter's and he said that there was the big guy got 10 percent of this deal or this percent. And the big guy was Joe Biden, because, of course, all the money's being made off of his position in the government. It's unseemly and it's corrupt and it's against the law if Joe Biden is involved. Um, it's seemingly corrupt and disgusting, even if Joe Biden is not involved. And it appears that there's all kinds of other ways that they could have violated the law unless they did it just so. But here's now another shoe that drops. It turns out that there is now evidence that Hunter Biden was paying bills for Joe Biden. Hunter was paying his bills. So wait, 
he doesn't have any involvement. Oh, it turns out there's a photo here and I went to this meeting and I shook their hands. And, and of course, that's all Hunter needs to be able to say, I've got, this is all you're in. You're in the top echelon. This is the vice president. This is number two in the US of A. Helps him raise all that money. Now, if he is kicking back, maybe it's not the 50%. Maybe he was exaggerating. Maybe it is 50%. But now we have evidence that Hunter Biden was paying bills, regular bills for Joe Biden. And they've listed them. It's in a New York Post article by Miranda Devine. Um, and you can see, and it's thousands of dollars on other repairs to the house, different things like this. Trust me, there's more than one way for people to funnel money and do these things. They don't have to walk out at you know noon on Times Square and say, here's the check for your corrupt actions. So this is a serious, serious thing. And, uh, and then, of course, the other shoe that has dropped, which I missed, it happened in late May. I guess I was busy. Nothing printed in the New York Times. Nothing printed in the Washington Post. And why would you print it? Okay, here's the story. I mean, maybe it's a, it's a big nothing. A former FBI director, Mr. Louis Free, gave Joe Biden's granddaughters $100,000. And in, the, in all these emails where he's discussing, oh, I'm glad I'm able to give $100,000 to Joe Biden's grandchildren, I'd like to get with Joe and you and do business deals. <laughs> Louis Fries, no dummy. He knows where the big money. He knows sometimes you have to, you have to spend money to make money. I don't know. Maybe he's just the nicest guy in the whole wide world. But when I think of doing charity, and of course, you know, uh, uh, I'm sure someone who's a, a fan of Biden would remind me, and I remember that Bo died. So Bo's got some kids that, you know, that, that might need some caring for. But, you know, this is not a family on the edge of the abyss. This is like if I'm thinking, oh, we're somebody needy who needs some some help. I'm going to do some charity. I'm not thinking of Joe Biden's grandkids. That's not who I see as the poor, underprivileged in our society. And I suspect Louis Free doesn't see it that way either. And and if I'm being ungenerous, I'm sorry. Uh, if I find out that Louis Free really cares about the rich grandkids of uh, public officials, it's just kind of a strange thing going on in his head, then, then I apologize, Louis. But this is, and, and the fact that it's not in the Washington Post, it's not in the New York Times, I, f I could find nothing. I'd searched several different ways, could find nothing. Um, now, here is what, uh, um, and I'm going to forget her last name. Uh, uh, Jasinski? Yeah, Emily Jasinski. Uh, I, I had Jasinski here, but Emily was covered up on my screen, my cheat sheet here. Um, so, but she makes the important 
connection here that it's not just about the corruption of Joe Biden. She says, in a healthy country, our free press would be highlighting the Biden family as the very picture of elite corruption. As, as they've been known to do, they've been known to highlight some of the things that go on with presidential families, as well they should. She goes on, they would be pushing relentlessly for answers to the questions these emails continue raising. Instead, it's mostly crickets. And she made a reference to the media or, or to this era of media corruption. And it's the first time I've heard someone talk about this as an era of media corruption. And it's one of the reasons I did this piece. I thought, wow, somebody gets how this is not the media stumbling a couple times, hiring a few people that are just too partisan, getting caught up in, you know, this one. If, if it were just Trump, it'd be over. And of course, now they can cover China in a way, but I see how they're covering it. They're covering it, still covering their behind because they know they haven't honestly covered the story. And it's not just Trump. This is, uh, we, we have media that we can't trust. And there's still some value in reading them to find out what lies they're telling, or more accurately, how they're telling the truth in a way to trick you into seeing the truth as something else. Oftentimes they're giving you true stories. They're just not giving you other stories. Um, and, and of course there are other times that just the whole way they, they paint it is completely ridiculous. And most of the, most of the stories that I said earlier where the Washington Post, which I read more than the, the Times, um, when they're talking about the WHO investigation of the origin of the virus in, in China, they're always talking about it as if it was a legitimate thing. They're always, a, you know, it's as if there's been some concern about it as instead of literally the head of the WHO realizing that we can't continue this charade, even though I'm in China's back pocket, this is just too silly to continue and admitting that they hadn't fully investigated the lab leak. They had gone to a two-hour presentation, sitting in chairs, listening to speakers from the Wuhan lab. That's not an investigation. That's an event, but it's not an investigation. So we still have the media playing that sort of game. And they're playing the game with, with Biden. It's almost as if we need President Biden to be the leader at this time. So we, we, don't, we can't print any bad news about him. We can't investigate anything he's doing. He's too important to whatever, their narrative, their goal, their world empire, I don't know. But it has nothing to do with, we need to get the truth printed in our paper and out to the people. That has been totally lost. And of course, when you think about what we know about the influence peddling that's going on uh, and that needs desperate. I mean, we know that much and we already know that there's been lie and then another lie and another lie. 
um, that Biden has lied about his involvement. Um, then you look at, at Friday's piece, Fear and Its Peddlers, and you realize that this week, as the moral leader of our society, and I'm not saying that's how we see him, that's how Joe Biden presented himself this week, he goes to the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia to give a speech basically saying that Republicans are racist, they are insurrectionists, they're all, they all can be painted with what a small number of people did on January 6th. And so all over this country, any reform uh, doesn't have to be debated. We don't have to get into any of the actual what's happening. Instead, we can just say this is the most, he says, we're facing the most significant test of our democracy since the Civil War. And of course, your first thought is, okay, he's being hyperbolic. And then his next line is, that's not hyperbole, as if he knows I know that I'm so full of it. I better, I better, you know, double down on it real quick. And then he, for emphasis, says, since the Civil War. But anybody with any brains knows there was this whole period after the Civil War and between the Voting Rights Act and between the, that time and the 24th Amendment to the Constitution that outlawed poll taxes. I mean, they used to be imposing taxes to go vote and liter literacy tests. And of course, just in case anybody thinks, oh, they just wanted to make sure people could read. No, 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 you should see these tests. I've seen them. I don't know if you've ever seen them, Tim, but they're outrageously ridiculous tests that I, I hope they weren't giving them to like professors of history, of American history, because they would have had a tough time passing them. I mean, these were, as soon as you get into them, you realize, oh, this test is designed for someone to fail so that we can stop them from voting. And of course, there were whites only Democratic Party primaries held throughout the South for, for decades and decades. That was stopped. And of course, I pointed out in this piece that, you know, surely uh, Biden knows about Jim Crow era things like this. And, and he does because he must, because he accuses the Republicans of being the new Jim Crow. But, you know, it is so ridiculous to look at what's really happening. Weeks ago, we had a piece, uh, what was it, hypocrisy ID'd about voter ID. For literally years and years, Republicans have said, we need sensible voter ID laws so that we don't have to worry that there's gonna be widespread fraud. And Democrats have said, no, that is racist. That's designed to disenfranchise people of color. Well, a poll a few weeks ago came out and showed that 84% of people of color are for voter ID laws. Because, and, and I'd seen <clears throat> polls before that that showed overwhelming support because people look at it and they say, look, you need a, you need a, you know, you can't play putt-putt golf without an ID. You know, you have to give them something to be able to take away the little putter and the, and the balls. It's like, um, it's just, crazy. And yet Democrats have all this time beaten up Republicans as racist, evil, anti-democratic folks because they support 
what 84% of people of color support because they support a simple thing that says you have to, you know, you have to be able to prove you're who you say you are and then you can vote in all kinds of different ways. So there's that. And, and that's just been, you know, we had that little uh, a few stories about how completely hypocritical Democrats were being and dishonest and then moved on. And of course, those stories weren't in big papers. In most of those big papers, like the Post and the New York Times, they were trying to explain it away. But you then, uh, Carl Rove has a good piece in the Wall Street Journal. There's been a dozen, I'm sure hundreds of dozens of pieces looking at what Georgia actually did, looking at what Texas is actually talking about doing. And of course, you know, Biden is using this brand them as racist and anti-democratic and trying to destroy our system. And yet what Texas is talking about doing is more early voting days than Delaware. Delaware's never had early voting. They won't start early voting until next year. Texas has had it for three decades. But never during this time has Mr. Biden, even now, come out and said, wait a second, Delaware's got to get their system in order. And, you know, and certainly there is a, a decent percentage of African-Americans living in Delaware. Of course, they support voter ID and sensible laws. This is, and this is not to argue that everything that a Republican legislator has drawn up is good for us. Trust me, it's not. And, and these same Republican legislators are trying to gut voter initiative. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, and they, they're, they're terrible. Of course, they're self-interested. And so, of, of course, is H.R. 1, which would partisanize, allow the FEC to be partisanized and, and weaponized in the next elections to stop people from being able to speak. So we've got all kinds of problems with both Democrats and Republicans not believing in limits, not believing in our Constitution, not believing in our system of government. They don't like democracy. They don't like a republic. They don't like republicanism, small r. They like big R Republicans and big D Democrats winning elections and controlling huge pots of money. That's what they like. So, um, but, but for Joe Biden to play moral exemplar and, and be the guy who's going to tell you how you know, elections should be run without ever having any of the specifics whatsoever, because the specifics don't work in his advantage. And also, it dawned on me after listening to his speech, uh, which we link to, uh, if you're a glutton for punishment like I am. And, you know, I listened to his speech and it dawned on me at the end, this is a guy who has probably disenfranchised more people unjustly through his Biden crime bill. And I call it the Biden crime bill because he called it the Biden crime bill. But this is a guy who is actually responsible, you know, maybe as responsible as any anybody for disenfranchising so many people unjustly, so many people of color unjustly. And yet here he is to, you know, label people in completely outrageous ways when he's more guilty of what he's pointing at other people for than they are. 
Yeah, no, I don't look at it quite that way, I guess. Partly because, well, I, I'm not going to defend Biden. That's just insane. Uh, <laughs> I don't I don't like the uh, Republicans' bills very much because I don't like any early voting. I don't like, I mean, I've, I've explained before, I, yes. I, I, I don't want to make it easier for people to vote. I, I think literally that we don't want marginally interested people voting so that they have to, ha they should have something on the line and that should be time. Right? Time is a fine thing. I think there should be what we had 50 years ago, which is largely no electronic voting machines because they're insecure unsecure we know that this has been known for 20 years almost nothing has ever done about it as far as i can tell now maybe they're better but i don't think they are i just i i just saw a story and i i hadn't uh, i had to i had to come do this so i didn't get to read it all but but the the thrust of it was that that uh not that they were alleging anything beyond this but that the arizona uh system had been breached Oh yeah, yeah. There's a, there's this, it's the last election was very weird, especially in the swing states, where the, the the voting behavior was very odd. By the way, compared to other states, just it was just in the swing states that we had some really strange behavior. Uh, but my concern is that I think that having precinct voting with a secret ballot, without electronic voting machines, is should be a norm. That's what I think. And this makes perfect sense to me. And then if you absentee ballots, ballots upon request for those right. few people in the right. military or people traveling, right. that's fine. With with them, and this is a contention in some of these states, where they want there to be some voter ID as part of that. Like yeah, you have sure. to put uh, part of your voter number or you have to do you something. Know, something like that. I have no problem with that because of course you're extending this courtesy. And the truth is, uh, unlike you, I, I do think it's really important that we vote together, that it, that we not vote six weeks apart. Well, that's why, yeah. can that's why in. the precinct, though. But, that's why but I like also the that we more, yeah, that we more vote together. But I don't have a problem with some early voting so that if someone's going out of town, they don't have to, you know, they can vote now and, and go and they don't have to find some absentee ballot or something else. But these are, you know, to me, that's it needs to be very limited. And and there's reasons for that. The reason for that is not because we don't want anyone to vote. One of the reasons I've laid out in, at thisiscommonsense.org many times is, not many, but a few, uh, is that it costs a lot more to advertise when voters are at the polls for six weeks or four weeks or three weeks. And because one of the key advantages incumbents have over challengers is a big money advantage, and you know how they get that, because they can vote right now. They have power, and people write checks to people who are in power. And so it's not, it's not exactly, oh, that's a fair advantage they have. That's an advantage because everybody loves them. No, that's an advantage because they're wielding political power. And, and so when you have these huge early voting periods, you are giving extra power to that incumbent and that incumbent's financial advantage. So, you know, there's things like this that if we have a conversation, I don't think a lot of these uh, issues are so much left, right. They're left, right in Washington because the, the Democrats see, oh, this works better for us. This will hurt Republicans, and Republicans say, "Oh, this will hurt Democrats." And of course, that's exactly what they want to do. But I think for most of us, we would have very reasonable, um, 
you know, concerns and we would we would be able to accommodate one another and see, okay, well, we can do this and maybe that's not everything you want, but it it does answer that objection you had. That's the way real people would talk about these things. And and instead, we've got this joke, uh, you know, President Sleepy Joe waking up to slam the Republicans for ridiculous stuff. And we have the media. One of the things I point out in this uh, this script, Fear and Its Peddlers, we have the media totally glossing over what For the For the People Act, H.R. 1, actually does. And it's public financing of elections. It's it's weaponizing the FEC to be able to clamp down in all kinds of ways. We're going to have a super aggressive FEC going after everybody who's out there speaking. Is that going to help the people who have lots of lawyers and accountants, or is it going to help the grassroots? I can tell you which one. So it's it's uh, this this is in many ways <clears throat> it's tied to the corruption because once you start to say you know if you're if you're the right part of our narrative corruption's okay there's there's no stopping it after that and the media has gone along with you know these bills are absolute voter racist voter suppression when when they're supported by 84% of people of color. I mean, it, you're not, but you're never, never going to read that. I know that because I saw the poll and the poll was reported in a paper, not the Washington Post. They didn't report th this particular poll or its numbers and then went to go find the cross tab to find out how people of color had voted. These things are not publicized even, even at all. So. Um, and we should we should jump from that, unless you may have other things on this, because because we 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 have discussed a lot of different election stuff. And and I before we jump to the initiative, uh, uh, initiative crippling law clobbered uh, about what the idiot legislators in Florida are doing. Um, we have discussed, you know, one of the things is. I, I don't want, I want voting to be easy. And you say, I don't want voting to be easy, but we're really not that far apart because what Tim is talking about is how stupid, and it is stupid. I mean, you sound really good. You, you've signaled everybody how wonderful you are, but the idea of dragging people kicking and screaming to go cast a ballot on issues that they don't care about, they don't want to know anything about, they haven't done any effort to, you know, this whole idea that we should just register everybody, or some people even, we should make it a law, you have to vote. This is silliness. People care about things, they go out and take care of them. The way to get more people to vote is to make their votes not so painful, like like me, who, you know, one of my great lines, I think it's a great line, is... Uh, uh, well, you're wonderful. Anyway, uh, uh, is that I've voted for one person my whole life who's won, and I still regret it. Um, so, you know, it, it's uh, it, but we want people to be able to vote if they want to vote. We want to stop this silliness about acting like if you didn't, you know, roll out a red carpet 
And, you know, well, here's one of my pet peeves, this whole idea that Republicans are trying to stop people from being able to even even get water in, in line when it might be hot and they're thirsty. And, you know, as if as if the whole goal is just to make these people suffer so they'll go home. People can bring a thermos. Yeah. And, and the truth is your family could bring you something. Right. What these laws do is stop political organizations from being camped out. They're giving people all kinds of bennies when they're in line with a shirt that says vote for so-and-so here. Would you like a hot dog? How about a, you know, how about a hoagie? And here's some French fries. I mean, that's what this is designed to stop. But I never read that in any paper. I, you know, it's, the media never told me that it was having discussions with real people who know something about what the law actually says and looking at the actual law and look most people are busy and this isn't their end all and be all and so they're not going to go look at the actual law that you know what was it sb 207 let me go see and read through seven pages of they're not going to do it and so the media can hoodwink them and it's it's sickening and one of the reasons I don't like mail-in ballots generally is that it allows things like vote harvesting, uh, ballot harvesting, yes. uh, which is really a creepy, creepy thing. Um, it, it was it was also made fun of by uh, the great uh, writer Italo Calvino in a short story called The Watcher, which I recommend. So if people want to read about a communist author writing about how various people parade all the cripples and, and mental deficients of Italy into the voting booth on, on voting day to prop up whatever regime they're, they're trying to prop up. And that's what it, ha what it comes to is that sometimes we want to avoid the point where the government looks like a tyranny. Because, you know, in a democracy, people eager support, eagerly support the government. And that would be interesting to see it happen again. I'm not sure I want it, but it's interesting to see it happen again. But in a non-democracy, but where democracy is valorized publicly, but not privately, not effectively, what you have are insiders trying to get outsiders to valorize and authorize their rule. So you get a lot of dirty tricks to make tyranny look like popular government. And I fear that ballot harvesting is one of the mechanisms by which uh, tyrannies uh, will legitimize in the popular in the popular mind their illegitimacy. I mean, there's, there's, there are very bad people engaged in ballot harvesting. And uh, there's some evidence that it's happened a lot in the Ilhan Omar district. I, I mean, I don't know if it's sh certain, but it's always ripe if you have widespread uh, mail-in ballots. My state has only mail-in ballots now, basically. Yeah, I, I also don't like them because I think it, it encourages, you know, a, a decent amount of the fraud is a husband or wife voting the ballot that was sent them for their deceased partner. And, uh, and it's the kind of thing that, I don't think any prosecutor wants to take that to court, right? but it's not right. It's right. not right. You're not allowed to do that. And, and so it's, it's, it's stuff like that. that you... Pre previous house owners. I mean, there've been previous yes. residents yes. in an apartment, 
There are people uh, people go to an apartment and get ballots now from you know it just it's very it's just not a good way of doing things. And I, I do want to say also I'm for also allowing people an open ballot that is a non-secret ballot online. I think we sh we can do remote voting. It'd be better than uh, mail-in ballots, but I don't think it should be secret. I think that if you want to do a secret, if you want to do a convenient balloting in your computer, I think you should be purely allowed to, but it should be completely trackable back to you and you just give up your privacy. So you have a choice. You can go to the precinct and vote privately, stay at home and, and, and do it on your computer. Uh, to me, this is a perfect compromise. I've never heard anyone else say it because I don't think anyone is as crazy as I am. But uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm willing to contemplate anything. And my ideal democracy is where people vote a contract with their government. Uh, that's how I want democracy to work, is actually not like anything we're talking about at all, is that if I want to have an ambulance service providing a public good in my neighborhood, uh, I'll say, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give 50 bucks a month to this service on this schedule if a thousand other people sign up. If a thousand people don't, then I won't do it. And that's that, that puts in a mechanism to allow for changing the deal. If they can't get enough people, then they change the schedule of services. And this is, to me, this is how government should work, because there's no reason why public goods can't be supplied in a rational way among rational people if they're given the right incentives and disincentives. But but that's not going to happen as long as we have. <laughs> part of, part of the problem is, is getting from here to there. But it would be interesting to see some places where you could do some of that. And, yeah. and try to move that because it's like, you know, so often we fight about it. I always think of the Postal Service, how when I was a, a young man, so many complaints about the Postal Service because our society was so reliant on the Postal Service and much fewer complaints these days because, frankly, you know, people hardly use the Postal Service, especially if you compare it to how much it was used, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's jump to uh, initiative crippling law clobbered. And uh, let me uh, applaud the ACLU in Florida for getting this case uh, taken to court uh, quickly. Um, and, and I don't think we have to spend a whole lot of time on this because it's so simple and straightforward. Almost everyone, everywhere, uh, if they're in an initiative state, the level of support for initiatives and referendums is about 10% higher, 10 percentage points higher, not 10% higher, 10 percentage points higher than in states that don't have it. Meaning that if you actually are familiar with it and use it, you like it more than the person in the state next to you who goes, gee, I sure wish we had that process where we could get term limits or other reforms or, you know, take some tax increase to a referendum or or if you're on the left, you know, maybe expand Medicaid, which is not one of my favorite things. But it's there's all kinds of things that be, can be done. Uh, we'd have almost no legalization of any sort of marijuana or anything else anywhere in the country if it hadn't been done first by initiatives where you could get out of the kind of the political process where politicians were scared to do anything that would get even a small minority angry at them. Um, so we all love the right of citizen initiative. 
except the people representing us in state legislatures. They don't like it at all because it gives us power and it impinges on their monopoly power to pass laws. So in Florida, they have again and again, and we see this in other states, Arkansas, we've talked about before, year after year, and oh, we just thought of a new way to kick someone in the knee and stop them you know, from doing an initiative. This year, Florida passed, and Governor DeSantis, who is arguably going to be a candidate for president someday, really is an idiot for having signed this. Um, but they passed this law that basically you cannot make a contribution to a ballot initiative campaign during the period of time where they have to go get signatures and almost always hire people to go out and, hey, would you sign to put this on the ballot? You can't give more than $3,000. So why do that? Has there been some uh, corruption involving initiatives? No. In fact, the Supreme Court ruled years and years ago, there's no way to corrupt an initiative. It's written in black and white. It is what it is. It can't be corrupted, you know, unless you, <laughs> somehow, you know, you get into the computer and change it, you know. But I think people will notice that at, at the somehow the great computer in the sky or something. Um, you can't corrupt an initiative. So what they were doing, if you knew anything about the First Amendment, anything about anything about anything, you would know this law is going to last four seconds after somebody gets it into court. But the reason they do these things is that the initiative process is often used by reformers who don't have billions of dollars, millions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars to spend. And so getting something into court is pretty tough. <clears throat> and you can't go run a petition drive because, you know, a lot of times you need people to write bigger checks than $3,000. You, if you sell someone that, hey, this is a great idea, they may be willing to give you twenty-five dollars or fifty or $100,000 to get it done. In Florida, you've got to collect 891,589 signatures that are valid. That means you're going to probably shoot for about 1.5 million signatures just doing the organization of that, if they all came in from volunteers that cost you nothing, just the organization of that's gonna probably require you raising money in bigger amounts from your supporters. Because everybody, you know, everybody isn't into politics. So anyway, it's outrageous, just totally designed to shut down the process. But there are people who have money and the ACLU uh, took this to court. You didn't have to have money this time and beat it just like that. And by beat it, we make the point uh, in, the, in the commentary that it's not decided yet. It was blocked from going into effect with a preliminary injunction, but the judge was pretty clear and the preliminary injunction means that the judge is saying, you are likely to prevail on the merits. And this would cause some irreparable harm. And of course, it shuts down the process completely. So they met both parts of that. And this happens to be something, you know, a couple of years ago in South Dakota, they uh, legislators 
petitioned a measure onto the ballot to outlaw any money from anybody outside the state. You know, kind of the let's return to Mississippi in the early 60s, you know, initiative. Let's stop outside agitators. It was immediately taken to federal court and crunched. And of course, you know, the state's then going to have to spend more tax dollars to pay the attorney's fees of the people challenging it, as they should have to. Um, but anyway, this was luckily stopped right off the bat. What's the takeaway? The takeaway is the Florida legislature hasn't a clue what the Constitution says. They have no idea how our system is supposed to operate. Or they're smarter than that, and they don't care. They want it to operate for them. They don't care about democracy and a system where there's accountability and citizen control. They do not want that system. So I don't know whether they're just incredibly stupid or worse. They're, they're out of control and, and dangerous. I'm afraid it may be the latter. So we, we, I don't know if you have something there, Tim, but we get to end on, a, uh, on an upbeat. That doesn't happen every day. Right, though we could just direct them to read the piece and tell them what it's about without having to comment on it at length. You know, that's not a bad idea. Let's do that. The piece is The Division of Adventure, and it basically just applauds the fact that we have individuals going into space. It's exciting. I'd love to go into space someday. I don't think I'm ever going to get a shot. I'll be okay but I applaud the folks who are going into space. But there's one, just one note. And that is, I did have a number of people who raised the concern that this is the wrong priority, even though it's their money they're spending, this is not government money, that this is the wrong priority, they should have done something else. And I think, you know, this is we 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 point out, you know, you can't solve every problem. It's not like, you know, they didn't take boats across the Atlantic to the New World until they were going to solve every problem in England. Uh, so anyway, I, I, there's always somebody who has a problem with what somebody else did. Uh, I just I just applaud them. Uh, anybody who wants to join off into space more power to you. <laughs> Go into space, you fools. Uh, anyway. <laughs> we might need the escape hatch, too. You know, it, it's... Uh... You know, that is something I occasionally wonder about. Why why the current craze? And it's not just the billionaires. It's also major... Excuse me. It's major countries around the world. India's in space. Japan's in space. Europe's in space. Russia's in space. Russia has a, has, has a really strong program. Uh, China's on the moon with a probe. Right. Uh, there's a lot going on, and uh, and I'm kind of curious what they're up to. Well, and and uh, it it does make sense, you know. If if nothing other than uh, you know we could get hit by an asteroid or something, I don't see any reason why humankind shouldn't spread over other planets if we can figure out a way to do it. And the only way to really get efficient. Uh, 
you know, techniques of dealing with asteroids is if you're dealing with asteroids for other purposes, too. So not, until you start harvesting asteroids, you're not right. going to be moving asteroids, really. Uh, so it would be helpful to get people... M getting money into space is a good thing, I would think. Yes. Yes. That's a great point, Tim. And we should end on that one, which is a solid one. Please come uh, read and see our daily thoughts and our daily uh, uh, what happened in history uh, at thisiscommonsense.org. And uh, we'll see you next week. We may be under an hour. You never know. See ya. Thanks, Tim. Bye.